Welcome back to the program. It seems quaint now, but there was a time that we had to rely on others for most of our needs. We had to rely on our family for food, operators to place calls, travel agents to book travel, and the post office to deliver mail. It was a time that required large institutions to fulfill our needs. But the technological revolution that began in the late 70s changed all that. As consumers and as individuals, we became empowered. We could do our own thing. We could customize our lives. But this newfound power was a little like the 18-year-old going off to college. A new sense of freedom would often result in excess. That excess, for us as a society, has been the self-absorption that it has engendered. But I would argue that that's changing. The millennial generation is both self-absorbed and one of the most compassionate. It is in some ways the bridge in a maturing culture that is beginning to come to grips with this newfound individual power. These are some of the core issues that Paul Roberts writes about in his new book, The Impulse Society. Paul Roberts is the author of the previous books, The End of Oil and The End of Food. His writing has appeared in numerous publications, and it is my pleasure to welcome Paul Roberts to the program to talk about The Impulse Society, America in the Age of Instant Gratification. Paul, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Thank you. Great to have you here. One of the things that, that becomes clear in looking at all of these areas of, of self-gratification and self-absorption that you write about is that it has happened in many ways because large institutions have atrophied and decayed, and really creative destruction has created an environment where individuals had to take on more power, and more responsibility. And that seems to be somehow related to this sense of self-absorption. Talk a little about that. Well, I think you're right. I mean, a couple, two things have happened. Certainly, uh, those institutions, those large, uh, in many cases, traditional institutions that we used to rely on, um, have become, in some sense, obsolete. Uh, and, and, and that has happened to parallel this rise in individual power. You know whether it's the power to, you know, do your own searches on Google or just, you know, transport yourself in your own car. So there, there are sort of two patterns going on here, um, and and I think that, you know, it's a human tendency to want to be able to sort of pursue your own interest and use whatever capabilities the marketplace gives you. That's what we've been doing from the start, and and I think what we've re- we've reached a point here where we have to ask, okay, there's individual capability on the one hand, but there's also the need to uh, active in a, in a collective way. And we're, we're at a point where we're really we're trying to refine that balance. Well, obviously, we want to be able to have, as individuals, the capacity to pursue our interests, to express ourselves, and to live our life as fully as possible. And yet, we recognize that without some sort of a collective sense of purpose, we're really, ultimately, our individual power doesn't serve us well. And that's part of the conversation that we're we're trying to have today. Isn't that part of what is essentially an ongoing process? You, you nailed it when you talked about we're trying to find our balance. In many ways, we look to things like social networks and the connections that those engender, as a way of trying to form some kind of collective experience. 
and yet they haven't really found their footing yet. When we look at things like the Green Revolution, we see the ways in which they were used to empower people to act collectively, but in many ways we're still in the early, less mature phases of this transition that seems to be taking place. Right, and so we do have ways to connect uh, you know, through social media, as an example, which are unprecedented, but they don't we're finding that they don't quite replace the more traditional ways of connecting. And in, in some respects, they can be um, uh, less actually disempowering in the sense that, you know, there's only so much connecting you can do if your connecting is face-to-face. If you're in a room of people, um, there's only so many people you can talk to at once. It's different, really, in the, in the digital world because you can be bombarded by connections, you know, by messages from your friends, by news and I think that without the sort of natural regulating sort of function of of face-to-face person-to-person connection that's one of the things we're struggling with because it doesn't allow us to be really productive I mean we were able to uh, create all kinds of revolutionary activity in the past five years you know whether we're talking about the Arab Spring whether we're talking about Occupy whether we're talking about the Tea Party uh, people were able to act quickly on their desire for change, whatever that desire happened to point them toward. What we lacked was a more solid capacity to follow through after those revolutions. We didn't have the ability to sort of build a a post-revolutionary order, whether that was democracy in the Middle East or whether that was, you know, pushing the Occupy message into the mainstream. And I think that points to, I think one of the problems there was that we had stepped so far away from more traditional face-to-face interactions that we lo- that we didn't have the, uh, a capacity to sort of build solid social foundations. Not that that can't happen. We may figure out how to do that through social media. But in the meantime, I think we'd, we'd, be- we'd better be careful about conserving the important uh, sort of beneficial aspects of more traditional um, interactions. Isn't one of the reasons that there has been this failure to te- really function in the post-revolutionary periods of these movements is because those movements require institutions and the very underpinnings of the kind of social connections that we've been talking about that created those revolutions are inherently anti-institutional. And there's a built-in conflict there between what creates the revolution and what has to come after. I think that's I think that's a big part of it, and I think the other part of it, which is related, is that you know we get so accustomed to be able to essentially have our own way um, because of all of these capabilities that we're talking about allow that. That's that's one of their uh, attractions is is the sense of freedom that you have, and then if you have to re- give that up to some degree and return to a more collective state, a more uh, and follow through with some of these institutions, it can feel disempowering. And I, I, I suspect that that's some of what's going on here. You know, um, but I, I think we're also at a point where it's not just a, a, uh, a failure on, on the part of individuals to return to a collective state. I think that it's, we're really casting about for new kinds of institutions. You know, how are we going to come up with institutions that can balance this this incredible power that individuals have and yet somehow channel enough of that power in a collective way 
so that we can get done the things that need to get done. I mean, we're still struggling with resource questions. We're mm-hmm. still struggling with global poverty. We're still struggling with an energy system that's you know completely antiquated. So these are large collective tasks that will require collective solutions. And yet where you see the sort of the biggest movement are innovations and ideas that are empowering individuals to pursue individual self-interest. And, and, and there's a divergence there that we, that we really need to think about. And because there aren't those institutions to hang on to, to rely on anymore, what we have to do is rely on ourselves. That's why we see people that are so interested in promoting themselves in a way all the time within this framework. Everybody has to be their own individual brand because the traditional brands have essentially vanished. Right. And, and there, you know, I think you really hit the nail on the head in terms of some of the paradoxes that we're looking at because we do promote this notion of self-promotion and we we're okay with it i mean just think about it if if to do what what we do now routinely on social media to do that when i was growing up in high school in the late 70s to, to promote myself to, to that degree to sort of assume that other people wanted to know what my latest profile picture looked like <laughs> or what i had for breakfast or where i went on vacation um that would have been regarded as totally bizarre back then you know, you basically would have had to walk around your school handing out pictures of yourself. And I don't know about where you went to high school, but I would have been punched doing that. <laughs> and so we're, 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 we've, on the one hand, completely uh, shifted where, where self-promotion is considered the norm and, in fact, a necessity. And yet, in terms of actually empowering the individual, in some respects, this, this self-promotion uh, leaves us in a weaker state. We're so dependent on affirmation from our, from our, our friends and our quote unquote friends that when we don't get a like or something on our Facebook page, it really bothers us. So we've, we have set ourselves up to, uh, value ourselves socially in a way that can be disempowering. And I think that that same pattern uh, you know, it plays out in so many other sectors. I mean, we are, we've got this fantastic digital power. I can search anything. I can stay connected, etc. But if the network fails, I'm toast. And in fact, more and more of us feel as if we've lost a limb when we lose connectivity. So in, a, in, in, in one sense, we've become much less self-reliant, much less independent. We're far more dependent on this network and the, and the, and the broader sense of a network. And I'm not sure that's where we want to be as individuals. But do you see that trying to find some balance, some equilibrium? When we look at millennials, for example, we find them to be incredibly self-absorbed. All the things, all the negative things we've been talking about. And yet, arguably, they're one of the most compassionate generations. And there seems to be this shift taking place in the sense that we're still trying to get our sea legs in all of this, that there's a maturing process that seems to be going on. Yeah, absolutely, and I think you're 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 right. I mean, my generation, and I'm 53. Uh, it, I think it's easy for us to dismiss millennials for those very reasons. And yet, when you sort of dig down into the data and just spend time looking at the sorts of things that bother them and don't, right. their capacity to tolerate, well, just to, to be tolerant and to embrace diversity is astonishing. I mean, it's it's the sorts of things that they're willing to just accept as being as human, are the things that even you know, the liberals 
uh, and sort of socially aware among the older of us still find awkward and, 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 and discomforting. And so that's impressive because it means that so many of the things that have held us up uh, in terms of accepting social change aren't going to be a problem for them. For millennials, and you know, and in the same way, their, their politics are are pretty interesting. The, the, on the one hand, many of them don't vote and participate in ways that people of my generation feel are essential, and and so it makes us easy to, to it makes it easy to sort of write them off. But the fact is, they're much more willing to live their politics year round, and not just at election time, and to insist that their politics be part of how they work, for example, and their relationships, and that and that to me suggest that there's a new uh, sort of a political model that could emerge here. And so the question for our generation is to is really how do we enable this next generation to to fulfill its potential as political activists and as social changers? Because it may be that we won't recognize the sorts of solutions that they will come up with, or at least we will find them so unfamiliar that, that our first tendency, our first reaction might be to dismiss them. But it may be that that um, those are the sorts of solutions that are are going to actually be effective, and um, I think that's that's really a question that that my generation needs to needs to get its head around. And maybe the the broader question, although we may not like it, and you and I are of the same generation, is that what we think doesn't matter. That this younger generation is going to find its own equilibrium and its own institutions. You talk about them that not participating in the traditional way and not voting, etc. All of that's true, but all of that comes out of what we were talking about at the very beginning in terms of distrust and the eschewing of existing institutions. They're going to have to find their own institutions, their own ways of dealing with this, and I don't know that we can contribute all that much. Yeah, I mean, in some, in some respects, when you talk to the young, some younger activists, they'll tell you, look, the best thing you guys could do is get out of the way. <laughs> Um, and I think that there's certainly some truth to that, and that's probably that's a reality that's always present as as in terms of social action, and it has been for centuries. I think that we have to keep in mind, though, that um, that one of the reasons that the the millennials distrust and want and want to come up with their own institutions is that the the present the, the present institutions appear totally dysfunctional to them. I mean, they've come of age at a time when the economy is going backwards. And the middle class, the, 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 the idea, the story of a middle class seems to be completely fraudulent. Um, the political institutions appear to be paralyzed. So that it's easy for the, it's easy to understand why they would be so skeptical of those traditional institutions. On the other hand, um, we, we, there is also, I think, a tendency among millennials to believe that individuals sort of properly oriented with the right amount of passion and a good heart can on their own or in small groups affect the sort of change that is necessary and that they don't need to um, rely on institutions. And I think that was one of the failures of the Occupy movement. Um, I, yeah, I don't think it was out of a lack of passion. I mean, a lot of these folks were willing to put, you know, to, to endure physical risk you know, for the things they believed in, which a lot of their sort of older counterparts in my generation, I mean, we just sat at home and watched on television as much as we might have shared some of their concerns about, say, how the marketplace was 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 going. So I, I think that it, we're going to need to have that millennial passion, but it's going to need to be balanced with 
some new approach to institutions, and I'm just not sure, you know, what that approach is going to look like yet. And that really relates to the politics of it all. Would we keep hearing all of this talk around and interest in the whole idea of of a libertarian moment? Well, right, and that's, again, the, you know, there is this idea, I mean, you know, libertarian... what exactly do people mean when they mm-hmm. claim to be libertarians? It's very difficult to know. Do they simply want to the freedom to do whatever they want and not have to uh, and not be overregulated? Uh, is it? Do they fear that government? Do they truly fear that government is too big and is and is sort of worming its way into too many parts of individual lives? I mean, that's a a totally legitimate argument to make. Um, but or is it more that they? that they want the freedom not to have to worry about their neighbors or to care about their neighbors. Um, because that also appears to be what's going on. Um, it's, it's very difficult. I mean, and, and again, what the, I think what a lot of the, the marketplace gives us the capability individually, um, to not care about our neighbors. You know, we, we've got the capacity to sort of live our lives with increasing separateness from those, uh, that we that are unfamiliar to us, who maybe don't share our values. You know, we can get our news from sources that are completely um, that, that fit our own uh, notions of politics, and we never really have to come into contact with, say, news or ideas that um, don't that are unfamiliar to us or, or that conflict with our our views. And I and, and again, I, I fear that. What what sort of being described as a libertarian moment is is in some in some respects a sort of uh, in organized selfishness. I mean, I guess the question is whether it's that or whether it is just this this pushback against large institutions in general. I mean, there is a sense that that the younger generation, the millennial generation looks around at the state of the world that was created by these institutions that that some of us revere to some extent and say, you know, they haven't done a very good job, so we have to find some other way. I mean, as we were talking about earlier, even within that sense of selfishness, there's this amazing sense of compassion and tolerance that exists side by side with that. So it, it clearly seems to be that we're in this, this inflection point, this transition period, to find something something new. Right. And I guess when I'm talking about the institutionalized selfishness, I was thinking less of millennials than I was thinking of folks that are more in, let's say, you know, the generation before my generation, who are looking at what they see as broad institutional failure in this country, whether it's economic or political and are essentially saying, fine, this ship is, you know, headed over the waterfall, and I am not going to continue to cast my lot with this larger group. I'm going to focus on my own self-interest and my, that of my family or community, and I'm cutting myself free. And, 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 and that, that's what I think is, is really going on with a lot of what we call sort of the libertarian movement. And it's not, and, and maybe selfishness is the wrong, is too strong because in some, at, at, at some point, that's what you have to do. If you don't feel the collective, you know, the, if you don't feel the collective purpose or the collective direction is the right one, you need to make a decision for yourself and those around you. And that's, 
then and then you begin to see that becomes this this snowballing effect, and I worry that that is in a little a little bit of the, the state we're in right now, and it's a state that is encouraged by all the capabilities that individuals have to act on their own, you know, to again to separate themselves and fragment themselves. So it's a tough. It, it, it's a it's a it's a it's a situation that doesn't lend itself to easy answers, you know. And I think that's the and and that itself that that complexity in and of itself is another thing that drives people to simply withdraw into um, their own sort of world where they can control the kind of information they get, the people they interact with, and they can re, re, sort of restore a sense of certainty and stability in a world that is uncertain and unstable. Right. I mean, you're absolutely correct in that there's a self-fulfilling prophecy aspect to it. If you withdraw from those institutions and and you don't want to have any part of them, then clearly they're not going to work and they're not going to function. And then it's easy to say, see, it doesn't work. So that's a little bit what's what's going on right now. It, it does feel like that. And I think that, I think that it's, you know, people of all political stripes, all backgrounds, all different kinds of personal history are, are, are more than capable of, of reversing that fragmentation and, and further of wanting to. I, 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 sense, I, I sense that there is so much frustration and, and actual just sort of sadness about the, the way things seem to be going. People can see that they individually are are withdrawing, are sort of sequestering themselves into these small worlds that they, you know, where they can get some of that stability and certainty. And they, they see that they're doing that, and they recognize that that's not good for the broader, for broader society. It's not good for the United States. It's not good for the world. Yet they're not really sure what to do. Where do you start? Because if if they're being realistic. Um, the, the various movements that we've seen in, in, in recent history, the, the attempts to change the direction of things, whether we're talking Occupy or, the say, the Tea Party movement, they haven't been very successful. And so um, what do we do? And, and I think that it's, it, it's, it, I, I, it strikes me that, that there's, a, there's a huge opportunity here. I mean, it, it, the glass of water, it feels more than half empty in many respects. But the very fact that we're having these sorts of conversations and that there's this level of unease and anxiety and sadness, I think really indicates that this is a, this is a moment uh, that could tip the other way. And, you know, we don't recognize, as you and I are looking out there, and I think a lot of people are, particularly in our generation, and we're trying to make sense of the patterns, trying to make sense of the change, trying to make predictions. Where's this thing going to go and which way should I jump? And I... And 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 that and because we can't see that immediately, it adds to our uncertainty and our anxiety and our sense of despair. But I think that one of the things we need to do at this point is maintain a sense of openness, and by that I mean a willingness to 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 wait and to be patient to some degree, to see how things develop and to see what does emerge from this. Because we've been so encouraged by again by the marketplace to not be patient. And to demand instant sort of answers, um, and it frustrates us no end when we can't get those. It feels wrong, but 
here I think is an example or a case where we're going to need to sort of push back against that market tendency and 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 uh, and force ourselves to adopt a slower pace and by and, and, and at least in this area of, of of waiting for patterns to emerge in many ways we're all engaged in this giant marshmallow experiment well right I mean you know that's you're referring to Walter Mitchell right right with the kids and 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 it is it is true we're I mean if if you think about the the the, the values that we that that were that were instilled in us as children, or at least the, the kinds of things our parents tried to teach us, where we it was important to be patient and it was important to be self-disciplined. And by that I mean, you had to have the discipline to work through even unpleasant things. And on top of that, you needed the capacity to see beyond the self. That is, to work at least occasionally for a greater good. Those were the values that we recognize are, are essential to any society, whether we're talking about society at the level of the family or an entire country. You have to have citizens who can be patient, can work hard, and can see something beyond their own self-interest. And yet we have a marketplace that encourages, in some respects, the opposite. So we're we're at a point, I think, where we're recognizing that you know, being able to say order something and have it delivered by drone, as an example, um, that sounds great. And once that capability is out there, and I have no doubt that it will be, it's going to be difficult to resist that. I mean, why not? It's there. Mm-hmm. But that's the kind of thing that will make it. You know, what what happens to the notion of patience? How do people develop patience except by living in a world that requires you to be patient? And if we're doing away with all these sort of natural obstacles to gratification, uh, what, hap- what what's going to teach us to be patient instead? You know, obviously, we're not all going to live in a world where everything is available instantly, 24 hours a day. I mean, the economy simply won't allow it. And, and certainly, given the way the job market is going right now, many of us can't afford that. Uh, but we do have the, sort of the digital um, counterpart of that, where we, we occupy most of us. Um, digital worlds that do give a sense of instant gratification or the capacity to gratify instantly. And what does that do for our sense of patience? And, and those, are th- those are the kinds of things, the kinds of, of outcomes of economic success that we, have, that we didn't really anticipate. You know, we never really asked ourselves what happens if individuals have a capacity to where they don't need to be patient anymore. How is that going to affect things like character and virtue? We never really talked about that, um, at least not recently. Those were discussions that we, you know, had centuries ago, but we've essentially pushed those into the margins because we've so wholeheartedly embraced the notion of, in the digital world, of being able to have everything all the time and instant access to massive amounts of information. And the more, the more bandwidth you have, the better. Without, without pausing and reflecting and asking. Wow, what is this going to do to my capacity to be a strong, self-reliant individual? Paul Roberts, his book is The Impulse Society, America in the Age of Gratification. It's just out from Bloomsbury. Paul, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you very much. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 